Hey, what's going on there, Warrior? Jeff Anderson here from warriorlife.com, and welcome to podcast episode number 473. So first of all, happy Veterans Day to my brothers and sisters in arms out there. I actually held off on putting this podcast out until today because it's a deeply personal one to me, and I have some unique stories to share with you that are going to highlight the positive impact that three very important warriors have made in my life and in the lives of others. And I want to share with you the 10 lessons that you can take from these stories that will I 100% guarantee you, make you a better protector and better prepared to live your life like a warrior. But before we jump in, these 10 lessons that you're about to get will make a great daily reminder checklist that you can hang up somewhere where you're going to see it. So go ahead and grab the handy one-page cheat sheet covering all 10 of these warrior lessons in our Loot Locker section of the Warrior Life Academy. Now, it's absolutely free, and you'll find our other cheat sheets waiting for you in there, along with bunch of other tactical goodies and if you don't have access to the loot locker yet then all you have to do is go to warriorlife.com loot and you can sign up absolutely free and now please let me introduce you to three warriors and the 10 warrior life lessons that they have to share tactical firearms training urban survival close quarters combat welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot this is the warrior life podcast hey what's up warriors jeff anderson here founder of warrior life and warrior life academy and happy veterans day to all my brothers and sisters in arms out there today is a special day of thanks for me um veterans day is the day that we traditionally honor and thank those who have served in our military, both both living and deceased. And it's also a very awkward day for veterans because, I mean, I think we all feel the same, at least the guys that, and girls that I've talked to, is that we didn't do it for the thanks, right? In fact, in last year's uh, podcast, I mean, when we talk about everybody thanking us, you know, thank you for your service, thank you for your service. And then I did kind of a rant last year for Veterans Day for our podcast where I talked about, like, stop thanking us. We didn't do it for thanks, first of all. And the war hasn't stopped for everybody. There are still a lot of veterans who are suffering as a result of the war's, uh, the internal scars of combat, let's just say. Um, As many of you already know, I have a nonprofit, Operation Save Our Soldiers, where we use a revolutionary brain-based healing protocol that is literally curing PTSD, combat-related PTSD. We don't even use the D because it's not a disorder. Uh, Trauma is, PTSD is actually a gift that keeps us alive, but how it's approached in how you get rid of the symptoms of it that don't serve you anymore, that is kind of a bone of contention that we, a lot of us veterans have with the VA system and how we've looked at trauma over several years. And so my enduring message from last year's podcast was basically like, stop thanking us. If you really say you support the troops, like just do something about it. Like take out your wallet, give $5. With our nonprofit, 100% of your donation goes to sponsoring a veteran to get the help that they need. Our brain-based healing protocol literally cures the symptoms of PTSD in as little as just one one-hour visit with one of our coaches. And the effects are permanent, and we have a 91% success rate with with being able to end the suffering of veterans. And our mission is to end veteran suicide. Unfortunately, most of the systems that are out there do not really approach the problem 
in the right way. And our protocol does that. If you'd like to learn more about it, if you are a veteran, you can go to operationsaveoursoldiers.org and you can find out more information about it and contact us to be able to get into one of our upcoming retreats. It does not cost anything for combat veterans to be able to attend our retreats. And it doesn't matter when you serve. We have brought Vietnam veterans in and and uh, had miraculous results with them as well, even after decades and decades and decades of of dealing with their trauma. We have had men and women who have been through the VA system for decades, finding no relief whatsoever on all the pills, on all taking all the therapy, everything that they've been dished out. And that has not worked. And we've been able to sometimes in just as little as one, one hour visit, been able to eradicate all of those symptoms. It's really, uh, it's really groundbreaking. And if you are a veteran who you are suffering with PTSD, then please go ahead and reach out to us there. Um, for the rest of you, it's Veterans Day. So I challenge you to go ahead and donate. Every little bit counts. You can just give, I don't care if it's just $5. Go on over to operationsaveoursoldiers.org. You'll see a make a donation button on there. And please go ahead and whatever you can, whatever you can do is always appreciated. Again, our veterans don't pay a single dime when they come out to the retreat. We believe that veterans have already paid the price that they need to in their service. So please go ahead and help us do that. But that is not what this this week's podcast is about. Um, I did enough of a rant last year, but today I do want to thank a few veterans for their service, but not for the type of service that you may be thinking about. Uh, you see, most people think about veteran service as our service to the country. But the military is more than just an organization of, of service members. I mean, it's built right into there, right? Like service members. And it's more than just an organization of service members that has the responsibility of being ready for combat. The military is an organization that turns everyday people into warriors that are ready for the battlefield. That's their job is to bring in and recruit the right people Except that when I went in, like you could pretty much just, uh, I mean, it was still the time when, you know, it was either go to jail or go into the military or go into the army. We did have people in basic training that were, uh, were given that choice and uh, made the choice to go into the army instead of jail. But the fact is, is that the military has processes and systems in place that turn warriors or, or turn everyday people into warriors. That's the, you know, so my hat's off to all the drill sergeants out there who have to take all these snot-nosed little brats like us and in a very, very short period of time, turn us into soldiers that will hit the battlefield and protect our freedoms and serve our country and all that. So there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, but no matter what branch that you're in, you have to understand that what it, what it takes to be ready for combat isn't just combat skills not just combat skills. What I didn't realize at the time was that I was also learning life skills that were going to carry with me for the rest of my life and would help me mold myself into the warrior that I want to be, but also the one that I need to be in order to, to protect and care for those that I love, those that are counting on me to keep them safe, to make me warrior ready in the face of whatever danger that might be. 
Now, these lessons that I've learned through my military experience and in life lessons afterwards, they've literally saved my life on more than one occasion, not just in combat, but also in the civilian world. And they've helped form a core part of who we are at Warrior Life and what we stand for and our motto of being self-made, self-reliant, and self-protected. Now, these three core values in our motto they're pretty easy to decipher, right? Like self-reliance, the government's not going to come in and save you. If it's a disaster, if it's some sort of national crisis, some sort of widespread crisis that's going to put your life in danger, you can't count on first responders to be there for you. You can't count on the government to swoop in and save you from everything. You are the only thing that's going to get you out of that hot water and that you can depend upon when times get tough. You need to be self-reliant. On the same token, self-protection is... Uh, the uh, the second one there. And that is, I mean, they always say like when seconds count, the police are minutes away. Like if there's a bad guy in the parking lot that's got a gun pressed up against your head, that's like, there's no cop there that's there. There's no police officer. You are it. So you have to take responsibility for your own protection. But it's that first one. What does it mean to be self-made? And, and what the hell does it have to do with supporting our slogan, live like a warrior? Well, on this special day, I, I wanted to share with you three stories and thank three veterans for the roles that they've played in my own life and give you 10 warrior lessons on being self-made that I've been able to draw out of the experience that these leaders have, have given me. And so this first story is about the ancient tactical philosophy or, or proverb that is most often attributed to the legendary Japanese swordsman Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, and it goes something like this. So one day a student said to his master, you teach me fighting, but you talk about peace. How do you reconcile the two? And the master replied, it is better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in a war. And so I want to introduce you to someone who I think epitomizes this famous warrior quote, because what Musashi was really advocating in this proverb is, is the need for a warrior to be prepared, not just with combat skills, but to also proactively prepare for combat mentally as well. That being the victor, in, whether it's in war, whether it's in life, requires more than just tactical knowledge, strength. And, and training on those skills. But you also have to think strategically, both in combat and off the battlefield. And that is what's going to make you a warrior. And so this first story that I want to talk with you about, well, before I tell you more about this leader and how these lessons apply, I need to give you a little backstory in Jeff Anderson and who I, and who I came to be in the military, because it starts with where I came from, because I tell everybody, no matter what it takes to be a warrior, for you to be self-made, self-protected, self-reliant, is that you always, you always are starting with where you're at. Where you are right now is just your starting point, and it's always only your starting point. So no matter where you are, you can start right here. But let me tell you where I started. I started as a piece of shit. Um, I really, I did not like school. I did not pay attention in school. I almost failed out of high school. I was not going anywhere. 
I certainly wasn't ready for college. I was <laughs> too lazy to take any sort of a trade job. I didn't want to get my hands dirty. And so really, I wasn't doing anything. In fact, the only reason that I even joined the army was because my I was working as a I was, I was actually was a security guard, uh, a late night security guard someplace. And I lost my job because my car had broken down and I was on my last bag of weed and I couldn't get a job because my car was broken down and I couldn't fix my car because I didn't have a job. And so I'm laying in my bed in my parents' basement, literally, and watching, I think it was Who's the Boss on my little eight inch black and white television, eating my last bag of Doritos, my last bag of weed, when the recruiter called and said, what are you doing? And I was high. So it was like, what am I doing? Wow, what a deep question. I wasn't doing anything. And so I figured, well, what the hell? I'm not doing anything with my life. I'm 18 years old. I've got to, you know, let me just go ahead and, and figure this thing out. And I ended up joining. But that's the only reason why. Back then it was pre, it was before 9-11. So there wasn't any combat that had really been going on. It was really more just like a job. And I didn't really want people telling me what to do, but oh well, let's just go ahead and do it. I've got nothing better to do here. Um, I carried on that not really doing very much right into basic training. I really didn't make much of a name for myself there. I really didn't expect much from myself. There wasn't really anything to expect. My parents didn't expect anything from me. So I really wasn't letting anybody down. I really didn't expect much from myself, even when I went to my first unit, which was 10th Mountain Division. Now, 10th Mountain Division at that time had just had just reenacted. It was a World War II uh, unit, uh, kind of a special operations unit back in World War II and had been disbanded, but it had been reactivated in 86. It might have been uh, in 85, but uh, I got there in 86 with a bunch of my my fellow buddies there. And it was a new concept that the military was trying, which was a cohort unit where you go to basic training with the same guys that are going to be in your your platoon and later on. And and then you spend the next three years getting at the same duty station, which was this, this was up in Fort Drum, New York. And the whole intent there is that you get to know each other like a family. You get to know how we all fight and you stay together and you fight together and you and we build this cohesive unit so that we're better, even better prepared when we get out there. But we had a lot to prove as well. And it was really just brand spanking new reenacted. There was we had World War II barracks. We had a World War II chow hall. We had all of these things. We didn't have the best of the best except for the equipment that we were getting because we were an experimental unit also just trying out new equipment that was being used in the military. So we, we look back finally on, on those days of, of, of these old barracks and everything. And the chow hall, I think, especially for me, we would line up in the chow hall. And I remember when we first got there, it was really a, a culture shock for us. And we would stand in line going up to the, the chow hall line. And on the board there, there'd be little announcements that were on a cork board but there was this plaque that was there and it said soldier of the year on it. And it didn't have any, anything on that plaque at all. There was no name there or anything. In fact, none of us even knew what it was even for, except that we knew it was a plaque of status. Now we didn't know if this was just like, just for the unit. Like we didn't know if it was, if, if there was going to be a soldier of the year, we had no idea any of these things, but every single day, for about a year, well, yeah, for about a year, it was we just we everybody walked by this thing, just kind of marveling at it. Now, when I first got there out of basic training, we 
we didn't really know much of what to expect. It wasn't like basic training anymore. Now we were at our duty station. And so our first platoon sergeant, I remember when we were, we were there, our first sergeant came out in front of the, uh, in front of our, uh, in front of the unit. And he said that there was going to be a soldier board and that they needed a volunteer. My platoon sergeant, my platoon sergeant turned around and looked at me and said, Anderson, you're doing it. Now I had no idea what a soldier board was. I had no idea what he was talking about. He just said he was doing it. My first sergeant said, Anderson, you're it. Now to give you a little bit of a military background here or, or something, the soldier board is really just kind of a, a dog and pony show. It is where you go up in front of a board of leaders, there's a very, you have to go up there in a very specific way. You have to look strack. You've got, you have to have your, your uniform has got to be per, absolutely perfect. You have to be, you have to look like the ultimate soldier. And then each one of these members of the board, which are usually made up of either people within, well, within the unit that you are competing for, because you're competing against other, others soldiers that are either in your unit or on outside units as well. So there's just kind of this, this ladder that you go up to, to win these boards. And what they do is they basically pepper you with questions. They're trying to sharpshoot you into seeing how much of mil how much military knowledge you actually know. So it could be like, what's the maximum effective range of the M16A1 rifle? You have to answer a certain way. You have to answer correctly. And each one of those gives you a point. And at the end, all of the, the members of the board there go ahead and talk about it. They compare their, the points that they have, and then they will award your soldier of the whatever, like of the, of the quarter, of the month, whatever it is. It's not, it's not really unlike sol or, you know, employee of the month over at Walmart, except that they probably don't sharpshoot you over at Walmart to be able to get you to get your, your face up there on that plaque. But nonetheless, I was chosen. I did not volunteer, but I was chosen by my platoon sergeant and I was told to go prepare for it. Now I had no idea what this was or how to prepare for it. So I didn't really do anything. Nobody really gave me much information. Well, my platoon sergeant didn't last very long in that position. And we're talking like really like in the very first month that I think we were there. And we had a new sergeant that had been assigned to the platoon, but was also as my, my squad leader as well, my team leader. And that was Staff Sergeant Kendall Ray Brown. Now, to give you some insight into Sergeant Brown's character and how green I was as a new soldier, I remember the first time we were going out to the field for a training exercise, we were packing up all of our gear. Now, when, in basic training, I don't remember it raining at all out in basic training. So, I didn't know what happened when it actually rained. So I remember Sergeant Brown coming into coming into my barracks room and we were packing up our, our rucksack, getting ready for the field and everything. And I said, Sergeant, what, what do we do when it rains? Now in my brain, I thought, I thought maybe we'd come back in, like maybe, oh, it's raining outside. So let's go back to the barracks and wait for it to stop raining. I honestly thought this. And I remember the look on his face when I asked him like, what do we do when it rains? And he said, he looked at me weird and he said, you get wet motherfucker. And I'll never forget that. And it was kind of a surprise to me. And then I, I realized how stupid it was that I even asked the question, but that's just to give you some insight into how direct Sergeant Brown was and how no nonsense he was. Now, Sergeant Brown, when he found out that I was going up for a soldier board, he explained to me first what a soldier board was 
And then he handed me this gigantic binder. It was about a, a three or a four inch. It had to be about three or four inches wide on this binder. And it was just filled with almost worthless information, <laughs> except that there were things that we were expected to kind of know, like the maximum effective range of an M16A1 rifle. But it could also be silly stuff or eh, just like really detailed stuff, like the placement of your rank on a uniform exactly where, where it exactly needs to be. But anyway, there, there are tons and tons of questions in this binder. That binder was my life off duty. My friends would out, they would go out to the bars. They'd be out there partying. Sergeant Brown made me stay back at the barracks and study that damn manual. He would come in, he would quiz me each day just to make sure that I was actually doing what he told me to do. And Eventually, it paid off. So later that month, I went into the soldier board, went up there in front and, and competed with the other soldiers that were in my uh, were in in my unit, and I won. Now, that felt pretty good. That was pretty damn good, actually. And and Sergeant Brown was proud of me, and my first sergeant was proud of me, and I was proud of me, and. That was just the first one. I thought it was over from there, but nope. When you win, you keep going up the ladder. And so I went to the next soldier board, went one unit out. So now it was that was for the month. Then I went for the quarter. And I won that one as well. Sergeant Brown didn't let out, let up. He 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 just kept making me study while all my friends were out there having fun and really just preparing me for the next board that I was going to. Ultimately, after almost a year of going to, to boards, I remember the final, the final soldier board, and it was for Battalion Soldier of the Year, which was the winner of that plaque that everybody walks by in the chow hall every day. That was a tough board. It was the best of the best from the entire battalion. And I remember going in there for the final points because everybody felt that they did well. And when they gave the scores, I had won by a quarter of a point. That's how close it was. But the proudest day, I think, of my, of my life was being out on the battalion parade field and getting handed the battalion soldier of the year by our battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Hogan. It was... It was powerful for me on a number of different levels, which actually when it, when I, which leads me into our, our lessons here, because I have 10 lessons for you here. So I want to share with you the lessons that I learned from that experience and having Sergeant Brown be my very first mentor that I had when I, when we got to our unit. So lesson number one is a warrior seeks the suck. Now, you've probably heard the common term. It's used a lot in military. It's used in tactical circles and our training and everything about embracing the suck. You've heard embrace the suck. Certainly in the military, we had to live that, especially being at Fort Drum. There were times where it was just, you were miserable. It was freezing outside. You, were, you had to be out there. So you, you couldn't go back inside. Thanks, Sergeant Brown, for making us go out, stay out there. But you know, embrace the suck. You've got no other choice. You just have to suck it up. Now, I didn't seek my studying for those soldier boards. And I didn't yet know the value of hard work because I'd never really been challenged for it. I didn't have to work hard in high school. I was just trying to get by. 
which I kind of did. But here's the silver bullet. The more you sweat in training, the less you'll bleed in combat. We've heard this saying before, but you have to want to sweat. You have to seek out the sweat every single day. So, swear off of the escalator. Never again take an escalator. They're always by the stairs. Take the stairs. Don't look for the closest parking spot to the, to the door of, of the store that you're going to. Walk your way from the back of the parking lot. Get off the damn couch and move. It's raining outside? Great. Go out and get wet. Go running. Go do something. Is it freezing outside? Great. Get out in the backyard and go do your dry fire exercises with your firearm. Don't wait to have to embrace the suck. It's going to suck when a crisis happens. You, warrior, need to seek the suck now so that when the suck happens in the future, you're already prepared. You're not trying to wrestle through the mental gymnastics that it takes to embrace the suck. You've already seeked it out ahead of time, being uncomfortable, doing that hard work. And then it's going to be a breeze for you. You're going to, while everybody else is just trying to keep up and just survive, you will be the one who's thriving. Lesson number two is a warrior develops themselves and other warriors. So Sergeant Brown wasn't, he wasn't just a leader. He was a leader of leaders. He made me study because he knew it was good for me. I learned about the value and the payback of hard work from being forced to be able to do those, being forced to do those things. He put me in charge of other soldiers. He put me in charge of training other soldiers, training my own platoon, training our, the other units within the infantry company that we supported. All of these, I was put in these positions that were outside of my comfort zone because he knew that the only way you were going to get better was to challenge yourself. Only I wasn't used to challenging myself. And he knows that. But he also knew that he was preparing you for combat. Even when we went, we did a, uh, we went to Honduras and we were there for some exercises. And we were there for, I think it was like a, a couple of months or so. Maybe it was a month or so. And I was chosen. Sergeant Brown put me up for training the actual Honduran army. Now, I didn't even speak Spanish. But I was chosen to train the Honduran soldiers in the army there on some of the combat skills that we knew in the U.S. military. And so I spent a good time with them, just training them. I had an interpreter and uh, I slept with the, that unit and I was, I was there with them the whole time. And, and it was a lot of fun. But the point here is that Sergeant Brown challenged me. And then he gave me the resources that I needed, even, even the drive that I needed, because I didn't have any. But he gave me the resources that I needed to be able to get over top of the obstacle that he would put in front of me each time. Now he knew that it was going to be, it was going to be just enough for it's within reach. It was within the skill set that I should have developed or need to develop. And he gave me those resources to be able to do that. He knew that he couldn't stand up there in front of me and the board. So he prepared me for that time that when I was standing there alone in front of the board, just like he couldn't be by my side when the bullets started flying in combat. Now he knew that. But we didn't yet really understand that. Again, we hadn't been in combat, wasn't even going on yet. We, it was just kind of this thing we knew might probably happen someday sort of a thing. But I've carried these lessons over in every aspect of my life. So my military career, at my next duty station, my first sergeant, who I'm actually going to tell you about here in, in just a couple of minutes as 
as uh, one of the other leaders in the stories that I want to tell you. Um, when I got to my next duty station after Fort Drum, so it was in my, uh, well, after three years, about three and a half years, I went down to Panama and I was given the choice of which team I was going to be in charge of because I knew the first sergeant. He had just come from my unit and he had gone to, uh, he had, he had gone to Panama to be the, to become the first sergeant there. He got promoted, went to become first sergeant there. And I was just behind him by about, uh, two to four weeks or so. And when I got there, I remember we were, I was waiting to go out to my, my first formation in the morning and I met him in the, in his office. And we looked out over the unit there and I looked at my platoon and he said, you get your choice of which team that you want to, you want to be in charge of. So I was going to be the squad leader. I was going to be the team leader. And then he said, alpha team, these guys are strack. And you could look at them and you could see their uniforms were pressed. They just, they looked professional. Bravo wasn't an option, but he said, Charlie wouldn't suggest it. I looked out at Charlie team. Their uniform was all right. I mean, this is back in the days where you actually had to polish your boots and you actually had to press your uniform. So some of you new guys in the military don't even have any clue what I'm talking about, right? But Charlie team was not squared away. Their uniforms were all wrinkled. Their boots hadn't been shined. They just looked like Beetle Bailey. They were just sloppy. And so my first sergeant looked at me and said, take your choice. And I said, I'll take Charlie team. And he just looked at me and smiled and I smiled back and he's like, are you sure? Because Alpha placed first in the team competitions that we had. And uh, that's going to be the, that's the best team that we've got. And I was like, yep, that's why I want Charlie. Now, these lessons and the development of future warriors have also shown up in other areas of my life because I was able to take Charlie team and quickly get them into shape. In fact, we, in the next the, the team competitions that we had, they were in last place before that. And I was able to train them up to get them to second place. It's not first place, but it's pretty damn good coming from last place because I saw this as it was really my job as a leader to make the next leader. It was my job. And you know, I was down there for a sh very short time when all of a sudden Operation Just Cause kicked off. And then we were all thrust in combat. And so some of the lessons that I learned saved my life during combat. But then also perhaps being able to take my soldiers and get them into shape and get them proficient and get them to be warrior ready, maybe that saved their lives also. So these lessons have carried on in my military career, but they've also shown up in, shown up in other areas of my life as a father, as a businessman, and even inside of the Warrior Life Academy with the training that we offer. I mean, I see my job, my responsibility, my mission really to myself and to my family is to be the best warrior that I can be. But it's also to help others. I've, it's to help my family. It's to help my son. It's to help my teammates. It's to help my, my employees. It's to help our members of our academy be the best warriors that they can be as well. Because I'm not going to be able to be there maybe when... Well, certainly not when, when you are called upon to be warrior ready. I might not be there for my family. They're going to be out there on their own someday. It might be in a parking lot and attacked someday. So I need to make sure that they're ready for these things as well. Now, the other thing that's a part of this is to never stop learning. So every day I try to learn something new. 
Never stop training because it doesn't take that much to train. And never stop teaching. Think about who you can influence in your life. I mean, 75% of our population that is of recruiting age in the military is considered unfit for service. Why is that? Largely because of the physical incapability that they have. So we have problems with, with physical health, mental health, obesity, things like that, that kids come up into, into recruiting age, they're literally unfit for service. That's not a number that I came up with, by the way. That is, that is in review of the military and uh, by outside review and is unfit for service. How, how sad is that, right? <clears throat> so who are you leading? Are your kids overweight? How are you setting them up for the war that they're going to have to face in the future? Not just the physical war, but what about the war in the boardroom or out on the job site? Who are you preparing to be the next warrior? And what are you doing to be the model of that? All right. Lesson number three is a warrior defines themselves. Nobody believed in me when I was growing up. Nobody. My, my family didn't, they didn't prepare me for college because they knew I wasn't going to go, go to college. They didn't prepare me. I mean, my, my stepfather was a tradesman and uh, didn't prepare me for a trade because he knew I was too lazy to be in a trade. I really, really wasn't headed anywhere. Nobody believed me and nobody believed in me and I didn't even believe in me. Sergeant Brown didn't even know me, but none of that mattered. And my past didn't matter. My failures in, of preparing in the past didn't matter. And I remember thinking that day that I was handed that plaque, <clears throat> that I'm not a piece of shit. That was what I thought. Like for once in my life, I'd actually accomplished something and realized that with a little bit of elbow grease, you really could do anything that you wanted to do, Jeff. You really could be self-made. But what it took was somebody to challenge my own inner beliefs and then give me the resources that I needed to determine if those negative thoughts that I had about myself, if those negative opinions that other people had of me, whether or not they were true. And Sergeant Brown gave that to me. And what I learned is that most people just aren't that committed to doing the hard work that it takes to achieve greatness. They just don't. I mean, look around you. And that's the whole reason I decided to create Warrior Life as a lifestyle brand, because you can't just buy the Warrior t-shirt. You can't just go ahead and, and slap that bumper sticker on your truck that you're a warrior. You actually have to do something about it. You have to have to do something to earn that title. And one of the things that I uh, that really brings me back to this lesson is something that I got from Tony Robbins. I'm a big I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins, the personal power program and, and the different programs that he has out there. And there was one quote that really, really stuck with me. It's not the conditions of your life that determine your destiny. It's your decisions. The conditions of my life were what they were. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in a in a high crime, in a poverty stricken area, or if your parents didn't have money to put you through college, or if you were abused, it doesn't matter what the conditions of your life are. You still have the ability to make your decision right now of which direction you're going to take in your life. So what decisions are you making that actually make you think that you're a warrior that are going to allow you to actually have that title and it means something so that when danger does strike, you, your family, whoever, that 
you're warrior ready because your bumper sticker is not going to protect you. That shirt is not going to bounce bullets off of it. You actually have to do something to be that warrior. More on that in a few minutes here also, but on with the next story. So this story is a tale of two first sergeants. First sergeant is a, is a, it's the non-commissioned officer leader of, of the unit, whether it's a, a battery or whether it's a company. And so that's, they have, they have that unit. It's a smaller, smaller size unit, but it's still a, a, a very, very uh, reputable position. Okay. So this is a tale of two first sergeants. And in the string of those soldier boards that I was preparing for, uh, I was getting ready to go in front of, this was going to be the battalion soldier of the quarter. And this was going to be all of the first sergeants from all the batteries in, in, in our battalion. And I don't know these first sergeants. Like I'd know them by reputation. One of them was a real hard ass. I remember, I swear this guy, if he, if he ever smiled, he was, his face was going to crack. I remember him very vividly. And I was, I was very concerned about going up in front of him as well. And for one of those, for that, for that soldier board, um, I was preparing for, for this one. And Sergeant Brown was in my barracks room, prepping me for being able to go in front of that board that morning. We were doing some last minute cramming there. And then somebody knocked on my barracks door when we were inside of there. And it was my first sergeant, first sergeant, Dennis Milnich. And he came in, wanted to see how everything was going. And told him we were, we were just crammed, doing some last minute cramming here. And he said, all right, let me, let me see how well you're doing here. And he sat me down and he sat down next to me and he asked me a question. It was the kind of a question that we would get on the board. So for example, what's the maximum effective range of the M16A1 rifle? And I gave him the answer. He gave me another question that was a, a board type question, basically quizzing me. But the way that he said it was a little odd to me, a little bit lower in tone, a little bit more slow and methodical. He asked me about seven or eight questions and said, all right, good. I answered them. So I got them right. At least I think I did <laughs> anyway, but I went in there uh, or he left and went to go prep for the board himself. When I got inside of there and I went up there and presented myself to the board, sat down when they told me to sit down and they started hitting me with the questions. Now, my first sergeant was second on the panel of four and started asking me questions and I was answering them. And after the first two questions, all the questions that he asked me were the same ones that he had just asked me earlier in my barracks room. Of course, I answered the questions. I knew the answers, but it was a little shocking to me as he was telling me them. And, and that single moment was a really tough time for me because I had a lot of respect for my first sergeant. But the fact that he was asking me questions that he had just given me in my barracks room made me lose a little bit of respect for him. And when he was done, I had answered all the questions. He said, I don't have any more questions. He went to the next first sergeant who just happened to be the one that I dreaded being in front of. I waited for his questions and he looked at me, that smug look on his face. 
And he said, Anderson, let me ask you, did your first sergeant happen to give you any of those questions that he just asked you to let you know what he was going to ask you? I felt, I felt like it was a, like an eternity that I froze there, but it really, it was only a fraction of a second. And I was at a real moral dilemma there. Do I tell him the truth that my first sergeant gave me all of those questions? Do I lie? Because I knew if I lied, I was going to throw my first sergeant under the bus and make him look bad in front of his peers. And it was a really challenging kind of split second for me. But I answered him honestly. I said, yes, first sergeant. He gave me those, those questions. The rest of the, the board members just started laughing. They just started laughing. And that first sergeant included, his face didn't crack, but he looked at me and he said, I have no more questions. And I thought I just lost. I just lost. I cheated with my first sergeant. I didn't mean to, but I cheated. And he had basically just said, nope, not going to, not going to, you're not getting a, you're not getting my vote today. I knew it was over, but I carried out the rest of the, the questions from the other board members left and they called us back in and announced me as the winner, which shocked the hell out of me. But that single moment had such a profound impact on my life that I never even realized at the time, which brings me to the lessons that I learned from, from my time with First Sergeant Smilnich as my leader there, which is lesson number four, a warrior elevates themselves through their own actions. Now, I have seen this more times than I can count throughout my entire life. And I often say that there are two types of successful people out there. There are those who elevate themselves by their own actions, by actually doing the things that make them great to literally elevate themselves because they're better than the other people around them. But then there are those who try to elevate themselves by lowering everybody else around them, trying to do the minimum amount of work. But if you just call people names, if you tarnish their reputation, if you say bad things about them, if you get people to mistrust them, welcome to politics, right? Uh, then that somehow makes you look like you're better than them. Only one of those is the true warrior, is the one who will truly rise up above and be better than everybody else. Because at that moment in the board, I have to say, like, I, I felt a little bit cheated by First Sergeant Smilnich. I mean, I studied hard. I studied my ass off. And now I wasn't going to get credit for knowing the answers that I already knew those answers. So I had actually lost a little bit of respect for him at that moment because I thought he just wanted to win and brag about it. The truth was, and what really happened was that my First Sergeant set me up. Now, the entire board already knew how well I performed at boards. They knew I had the smarts to win the competition. What they wanted to see was if I had the integrity to have the title that was going to go with winning that. So they had already prepared. They already knew that my first sergeant had given me those questions. My first sergeant was going to put me to the test. And he didn't tell me that 
that first sergeant was going to ask that question of me. He wanted to see himself whether I had the integrity that was going to allow me to rise up above the people next to us, that the other soldiers that were in that competition, or whether I was going to take the road that didn't wasn't deserving of going to the next level. So, which brings me to the second uh, first sergeant in this story, because I did say it was a, a tale of, of two first sergeants. And lesson number five is a warrior does the right thing even when it's not popular or convenient. So when I got to my next duty station in Panama and my second first sergeant that I had there when I was in the infantry company there, uh, I was an E5 when I, when I was in when I was in Panama. So I was, a, I was a sergeant and the next rank was going to be as a staff sergeant. You had to have a certain number of points from the training that you do. You get different points there. You rack up as all these points. And then the military uses that point structure when it needs enough, when it needs new E6s, those staff sergeants, when it needs new ones, it's going to it's going to lower that number to allow a certain number of people over there. So the higher your number, the sooner you're going to get you're going to get promoted to the next rank. So if you went to college, you get points for that. If you take training, you get points for that. If you if you take uh, correspondence courses through for for college, you get points for that. So you can rack up a bunch of points there. So for me, I knew that my points weren't as high as they needed to be, probably I wasn't going to be a staff sergeant for quite a while. I didn't even really watch the numbers on what the, when the numbers came out each month, it wasn't, I wasn't really looking to see if I, if I had made it. Cause I realized that it's probably gonna be a while before I was in E6. But then one time I went to morning formation and the first sergeant came out in front of our, in front of our company. And he said, we've got some promotions. And he called out five or six people for the promotion out in front of the unit to go out there and be promoted. One of them was Sergeant Anderson. Shocked me. I didn't realize the numbers had come down that low. So I went up there, but I thought that one of the guys in my platoon was actually, I thought he had more points than I did. Don't know, but I went up there. The first Sergeant called me. I went up there and he went one by one and pounded the, uh, the staff Sergeant rank into my, into my BDUs on my collar. And I was now a staff sergeant. He dismissed the company and everybody went off to go do their training. And I went off to the, uh, the admin section to ask what the points were at. And what I found was that the points were lower than my score, than I had accumulated. That didn't make any sense. Were my points wrong? No, I checked my points. The admin checked, checked the points. He's like, wow. Yeah, no, they made a mistake, but I mean, you're in. And so I've got to go talk to the first sergeant. So I went over to the first sergeant's office and he had a bunch of E7s in there. They were the platoon, the platoon, leader, uh, platoon leaders were in there. They were all shooting the shit. And I asked to talk to the first sergeant. He said, yeah, come on in. I said, can I talk to you in private? He said, sure. So we went off to the side of his office and... I said, first sergeant, I, I think there's been a mistake. I didn't actually make staff sergeant rank. My points are put in there. They're put in there wrong, or they just, they gave me the, they gave me the promotion, but they didn't compare the, the, the bar that you needed to get over with my actual rank. And he looked at the paperwork that I showed him and he's like, I'll be damned. 
And then he looked to make sure that none of the other platoon sergeants had, were, could hear him. And he said to me, look, you're a staff sergeant. Like, according to military records, you're a staff sergeant. They're not going to question this. You are a staff sergeant. So just take the rank. And I looked at him and I didn't even, didn't even miss a beat. As first sergeant, I'm, I'm not a staff sergeant. It's, I did not, I did not get the points that I need to for it. And I need this to be corrected. And he looked at me, he kind of shook his head. He couldn't believe that I was actually taking that decision over his suggestion, but I did. And I got, I mean, people were expecting me to be, have my staff sergeant rank the next formation that we were at. I didn't, I put my E5 rank back on there immediately. Now here's where these lessons come in. I, I could have lied to the board when I was there at the soldier board there. I, I was caught in a struggle whether I should tell the truth and throw First Sergeant Smilich under the bus or whether I should lie and maybe still have a chance of winning because it didn't look like we were cheating, right? I could have, I could have tried to keep the secret there. In the end, I felt like my First Sergeant was going to have to accept the consequences of his own actions. I mean, really, that was what it came down to is like, if he cheated, that's on him, but I'm not going to lie here to the other sergeants that were on the soldier board. Now, frankly, I, I didn't think this was the popular or convenient decision to be able to say, yeah, he told me all those questions, but I knew it was the right one. I knew it was the right one. Likewise, I could have lied about my promotion. My first sergeant backed me 100%. I didn't even have to tell anybody anything, but my first sergeant suggested that I keep the promotion because it meant more power. It meant more money. It meant more status. It, it had everything that came with it, but I didn't choose that. But the real impact of taking that, of, of making that decision, of doing the right thing, even though it wasn't convenient or popular, was... I guess I can put it down to this. I still remember First Sergeant Smilnich's name. I don't remember my First Sergeant's name in Panama. I never will. And I never care to. But First Sergeant Smilnich will always be a lesson to me that I've carried throughout my entire life and how I deal with other people in doing the right thing. Lesson number six here is that has to do with this is a warrior builds their own reputation and then guards it like gold. So one thing that I've learned over and over again is that there's, there's one thing that always arrives at your destination before you do, and that's your reputation. The question is, who will you be when it gets there? So my reputation for winning soldier boards in the military was well known. What these leaders wanted to know was if I had the integrity. And ultimately, it was my integrity that my decision was based on when I said, yes, my first sergeant cheated and told me all of the questions. It was my integrity that wouldn't accept the promotion that I didn't have coming due, even though a first sergeant said, accept the promotion. But understand this, you are in charge of your reputation. You and only you. Your reputation is self-made. It's your reputation that's going to be there when others try to destroy it. People who know you, that those who know who you really are and what you stand for, they will have your back. I've had people try and uh, even get on our blog and say that, you know, oh, you're just, you're just 
marketing, you're just doing all this to try and scare us or whatever. And I'll have people jump in there and set them straight. People that have followed us for years, followed our work for years. But also know this, it only takes one step off of that path, that one step off of that path of integrity, and it can destroy everything that you built. My reputation for integrity, hard work, my standard of excellence, that's followed me long after my first duty assignment. And if I had lied that day, I'm pretty sure that my reputation would have been destroyed, that it would have followed me to my next unit. I would have been known as a liar, as a cheater, and someone who couldn't be trusted. And my final story for Veterans Day is ironically a tale of a failed warrior and the top teams competition. And it's in this story that I want to introduce you to Sergeant First Class David Elder. Now, Sergeant Elder was, he was the poster boy for a stud of a soldier. Uh, He was only, I don't know, maybe he was only five foot four or so. I mean, he was like, he was pretty short, but this guy was jacked. Now he was probably at the time, I mean, he was our brigade, he was our, um, he was our brigade, our brigade fire support sergeant. And, uh, I, I'm guessing, I mean, he was a sergeant first class. He was in E7, so he'd been in the military for a while. So I'm going to say that he was in his, he was in his, maybe in his 40s somewhere. Um, no, probably not that. Probably his like uh, mid to late 30s. He was, he was getting in there for his career. But this guy was jacked. I mean, just shredded, gigantic arms. I mean, he, you could tell he just like, he was just, he was the perfect soldier. His appearance was of a perfect soldier. He had the knowledge to go with it. He was just, he was such a great leader. He maxed his, his PT test. So we have to take a PT, te- a PT test um, for those of you in the military or not in the military. Back then, anyway, it was uh, push-ups, sit-ups, two-mile run. And he maxed it out. Like there's different levels. There's different, you get a different score depending upon how many push-ups you do in two minutes, how many sit-ups you do in two minutes. And then um, your two-mile run, what your, what your score is. So where you, where you, score on each one of those events is going to be your PT score. You have to make a certain standard there. Now, the thing is, is that as you get older, that standard decreases. All right. So just so you know that, but Sergeant Elder maxed out his PT test every single time. In fact, I mean, maybe it was because of his age or whatever. I mean, those standards weren't all, they weren't as high for him as they were for, for us that were just like 18, 19 years old. But he would knock out his push-ups in like 30 seconds. He didn't have to take the whole two minutes to be able to reach his maximum number of push-ups that would give him the maximum score for his PT test. He'd get down there, done. Sit-ups, done. Like 30 seconds, he'd just knock them all out. Two-mile run, maxed it out. Now, it was because of his leadership role and what a model he was as a leader that he was chosen to lead a team of kind of a group of, of best soldiers that were physically fit in our top team's fitness competition. So I was chosen for this competition. I was in, I was in really good shape. I, I wasn't maxing out my PT tests at all, but that competition was coming up in just a couple of months. So we had a little bit of time to be able to get ready for it, but he was the leader of that team and he chose who was going to be on it. He chose me. He chose uh, my buddy, John Adams, uh, my other buddy, uh, I mean, we were all, all friends there, but uh, John Adams was there, Quinn Wilson, uh, Stephen Kampf, 
and Michael White was on there, and I might be missing a few, so I apologize if you ever listen to this, guys, and I missed you on on the uh, the roster there. But we worked really hard for for that top teams competition. Now, this was a physical fitness competition. There was I knew there was going to be some obstacles that were going to be part of it as well. But we were going to be doing a PT test. We were going to be running. There was going to be something related to obstacles. I didn't really know what it was, but we would do our regular PT in the morning. Actually, we did our own PT because it was at a higher standard. So we were running faster. We were going to the gym. We were training at the gym after work each day. We were hitting the weight room and getting in really good shape. Now, one of the things that we were supposed to do also was in front of our barracks, there were two uh, climbing ropes about 50 feet up. And we were supposed to climb that rope every single day. That was one of the assignments that Sergeant Elder gave us. But frankly, I mean, I felt like the rest of the training was enough. When we're working out in the weight room, we were running faster than ever. So everything was perfectly good there. But then the day of training or the day of the competition came. We did our PT test. I did well on it. I didn't max it out. But fortunately, somebody like Sergeant Elder was there to max his stuff out. So we did really well there. We were up against other units actually within the entire division. Then we went on a run for, it was like, it's almost like a cross country run. So it was through the woods. We were on, we were on the road. We ran on the road, we ran on the wood through the woods. And then we hit the competition. Now the final obstacles we were going through here. Now we were running this as a team, but we didn't have to stay together as a team, but your time ended when the last person of your team got across the finish line. Now we were in pretty good standing here. We weren't doing that bad and we took off and I wasn't at the front of our group. I wasn't the best runner in our team. I actually had been slacking a little bit there because I thought I was in good enough shape. I mean, how how hard could it possibly be, right? So I really didn't, I, I know I wasn't at my best there, but I also never ran, never used that rope thinking that it was, that was that all I needed. And then we turned that final corner right before the finish line on that obstacle. And I was already trailing the rest of my team, but I hit that thing and I turned around and what I saw in front of me was a 50 foot rope. And right next to the 50 foot rope, to be able to get over that 50 foot barrier of an obstacle and be able to get down or get past that finish line was a rope net. So essentially like a giant rope ladder, you know, with all little little squares in there that you could climb up that that rope wall, if you will, and get over the obstacle and then climb down the other side. Now, everybody knows that if you can climb a rope, going up that rope, you're going to get up there faster than trying to go up a rope net. Coming down, super easy. You slide down the rope. But I didn't take the rope because I didn't feel like I had the strength to be able to do it, in which case I would never get up over top of the obstacle. And so I took the easy way out. At least I thought that's what it was, but it was the rope net. Now, as I'm trying to climb up this rope net and my team members have already crossed the finish line and they're cheering me on. Come on, Anderson. Come on, Anderson. I could see other people that were didn't run even as fast as I did coming up from other units that were going up the rope, sliding down the rope and going over the finish line while I'm still climbing up that damn rope net. Eventually, I reached the top, got over it came down the other side, but I couldn't slide down. I had to come back down the other side as well. I eventually got over the finish line, just 
snot, like snot just pouring out. I, I was done. I was toast. And I had let my team down. We had really gone down in the rankings all because I didn't do what I knew I should have been doing. I didn't follow Sergeant Elder's instructions there. I let my team down and I failed as the warrior that they needed me to be. And I learned some valuable lessons, which is where we pick back up here, which is lesson number seven, which is a warrior sets their own standards. So these lessons all come from working with uh, Sergeant Elder here. What you see a lot in the military are minimum standards. In fact, you even see below standards. You see the people when they, they'll take advantage of the lower PT standards when they get you know, they, they get older. When they reach that next level, it means that they can get a little bit fatter because the height and weight standards are a little bit less. People, it's expected that you're going to get older. It's expected that you're going to get fatter. It's expected that you're going to get weaker. And so the military has lowered the standards each time you reach one of like a new segment there of an age group. So Sergeant Elder could have done the minimum that was needed to pass. He could have done that. But even the military standards weren't his standard. His standard was to max everything out, to be well within his, I mean, I don't think he had like 0% body fat, but he kept himself warrior ready physically. He kept his, his skills tight. Now, actually, the Army is finally getting to understand this concept and the new standards that they're putting out for um, and remember now, 75% of our recruitable age population out there in the United States is unfit for service. But instead of lowering the standards, I think the Army is finally actually getting it that what it takes to survive the battlefield and be there and not be a, um, a burden on your team that's going to put you and their lives, your and their lives in jeopardy is. I believe they're, they're putting the standards all the way across the board. Now, I'm not sure if this has gone into effect yet or not, but what they're realizing is that it, it, the battle doesn't, doesn't care what age you are. It doesn't check your age. It doesn't give you an age group out on the battlefield. It doesn't check and see what your waist size is. Like It's going to send a bullet your direction one way or the other. If you're fat and you're slow, then you could very well be dead. So it doesn't matter what age you are. So I think they're finally getting that, that uh, getting this. But here's what here's where you need to really think about it. What about you? What are your standards, and are they enough for you to carry out your mission? Are you going to be able to put your wife over your shoulder and carry her out of the burning home, or walk a long distance? that is going to help you be able to get to safety or, or carry your bug out bag that you loaded up with all of this really cool gear that now when you actually have to put it on because your vehicle's broken down and you're trying to get to safety and you got to carry all this stuff, you know, maybe you're just not in shape enough to be able to carry that. If you're a woman, are you going to be able to drag your husband out of a, out of a burning building or fight back against a criminal who sees you as a weak, easy target? You need to set your own standards. Don't let other people set those standards for you. You set them and you stick to them. But even today, I, I hold myself accountable to the younger standards that the military had set. I don't, I don't increase or, or decrease my, lower my standards because 
I'm older and hey, I can I can afford to get out of shape a little bit. No, I don't let myself get too out of shape or stray too far off of my diet. I can look in the mirror and see, oh, Jeff, time to put those chocolates away. There's a certain level I will not go past because I need to be warrior ready because my my family is counting on me to be able to do that. Remember, being a warrior isn't a t-shirt. It's not a bumper sticker. It's a lifestyle. Lesson number eight is warrior does the work that needs to be done. I didn't do the work that I needed to do when it came to the top teams competition. I paid for it. More importantly to me is that my entire team paid for it. Sergeant Elder paid for it. They did the work. I didn't. And I failed them. And we failed as a team because of it. So are you going to let your team down? Are you doing the work that needs to be done to keep yourself and your team, your family, that's counting on you to keep them safe, counting on you to keep them protected? Are you doing what you need to be doing? What work do you know you should be doing, but you aren't? You know you should be doing dry fire practice. Are you? If you have a handgun, are you doing dry fire? You know you should be exercising. Are you? And this is one of the reasons why in, in the Warrior Life Academy, our Warrior Ready Club members, our, our all-access members that, that get the training that we do, um, they get the training, but then we do a mini mission every single month. And in that mini mission, that's applying the training that we just did to real life scenarios. We make it fun because we have our, we have our, our brain-based uh, protocol, our neurotactical programming. We use this to help you level up. And so with these mini missions, you're getting in there and in a fun way, you're, you're going in there and you're, you're putting the training to, to use inside of there. And then those that actually finish the mission that actually come back to base alive and, and they've shown that they've mastered those very simple things that are fun to do. Those warriors are in the running for, it's a very good prize. Like we, every month we have a, a drawing for uh, the only way you can get the, the, the prize. And we're talking about like, we've given away guns. We've given away like Bob training dummies. Like these are all in the three, four, five, six hundred $600 uh, range and above. So, but get this, like, even with all the members that we have, which uh, we, we did our launch because we're going to be relaunching at the beginning of next year. We did our launch. We had about 500 founders that, that signed up. But even then, we only have about five to seven of our members that actually do the mini missions. The rest of them don't climb the rope. So these five or five to seven that, that regularly every month go ahead and finish all of the tasks in the mission. They've, I mean, they're just racking up all the stuff. The rest of the people that, I mean, they're willing to pay to be members, but will they be warrior ready? I can't, I can't say that they will be. They're not showing up for the training. They're not showing up and testing themselves. So that's going to be on them. It's going to be their eyes, their families looking in when danger strikes. All right. Lesson number nine is a warrior expects the unexpected and prepares for it. So that damn rope as the very last obstacle in the top teams competition was not expected. I did not think that there was going to be a rope there. If there was, if I knew it was going to be, I probably would have gone up the rope. I wasn't prepared for it. I, it the rope didn't care. The rope didn't care. The winner's circle didn't care. I knew what I should have done and I didn't do it because I didn't think that it mattered. In the end, it was the one thing 
that really did matter. It was the one thing that took me down. Now, the same goes for the things that we prepare for as warriors. Now, are we ever going to see a nuclear confrontation with another country? I don't know. Will your home ever be invaded by a ruthless gang in the middle of the night? I don't know. Are you going to be ambushed from all sides by armed criminals as you're pumping gas into your truck? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But if the unexpected does happen, will you be warrior ready? Because I can tell you that most people are not doing the training because even though they know that those threats are out there, they don't really, on a cellular level, think that it's going to happen to them. I can tell you in the military, when we went in, since there was no combat that had started yet, it really, really didn't think we were going to be in combat. It had been a long time since we'd really been in combat. And so really didn't think it was going to happen. Nowadays, I hope that every soldier that's in there realizes that as long as we, you know, the decades that we've been at war now, I hope you realize that your life and the life of your team is going to depend upon you being warrior ready when the bullets start flying. All right. This brings us to lesson number 10 here, which is a warrior never quits. So hard times are inevitably going to come to all, inevitably come to all of us right? There's, there's no shortage of hard times out there. For you, it might not be combat, but I've learned a lot of these lessons that have really put me in a situation where I've had to rise to the occasion there. But as we often say, you know, when danger strikes, you won't rise to the level of your expectations. You'll fall to the level of your training. But when it comes to being, being prepared to be warrior ready, the mental is just as important as the physical and the skills. Because I've seen hardcore soldiers, when the bullets start flying, crumble into a puddle of tears and not be able to fire back at the enemy, just kind of crawl behind a car and just sob there uncontrollably while their team members are being shot at and they need the backup. And the backup wasn't there. So hard times are going to come. It might not be combat. You might face things that you may even feel are too tough to overcome. And I can tell you, it's not going to matter. The very first tier of our S3 Warrior machine that we use to guide all of our training in the Warrior Life Academy, um, that very first tier, that foundation covers what we call the three Bs, brain, body, and backbone. Now, that serves as the foundation of our training, and, and, and you're going to need all three of those things. When that moment comes, when you need to rise up and answer that call to stay alive and perhaps keep others alive, maybe people that you love and that are counting on you for their protection, your ability to fight through anything is going to be your number one best weapon to fight with. Anything that you have, a, whether it's a gun, a knife, a club, whatever it is, like your, your, your bug out bag, those are all just tools. They're all just resources that you have at your at your disposal, but it's your brain, it's your body and it's your backbone that you're going to have to call upon. And you make those three things. Now, when hard times come, those are going to test you. And I can say, and, I, and I've talked with other, other uh, combat veterans about this as well, like, well, how, did we, how did we get through it? And it was really that never quit mentality. A warrior never quits. Warrior fights through the pain fights through miserable living conditions. We've been soaking wet, freezing out there, just shivering, thinking you're going to die, thinking you're going to freeze to death. 
the stress, the stress of combat, the stress of being away from your family for a year on an unaccompanied tour. These are the things that really are going to weigh heavily on you. You have to be able to get knocked on your ass and get back up because a warrior never quits. <clears throat> and the lessons that I've learned and the experience that I've had, both good and bad, the successes that I've had, the failures that I've had, they've all helped me be better prepared to do that fighting that my country is asking me to do, that my family, that the way that I want to project myself to my family. And I've always said, like, I don't care, you know, at this point, what, what I've learned is that if you, if you tell me the enemy is at the top of that hill and there's a trench line in there and they're heavily, they've got 50 caliber machine guns and they've got tanks there and they've got, they've got razor wire all lined up this whole thing. And then it's a cement bunker on top of that hill. I said, Anderson, you're the last one. This war depends upon you. You've got to take that hill. Here's your toothpick. This is all you have to take that hill. I'm going to take that fucking hill with a toothpick and the tanks and the razor wire and the trench line and the bunker and the enemy's 50 caliber machine guns and howitzers and they can throw any aircraft at me. I don't care what it is. I'm taking the fucking hill. And all I need is that damn toothpick. You need to have that kind of mentality that nothing is ever going to stop you from staying safe from fighting through the pain, from fighting through the miserable conditions, from going against all odds and coming out the victor. And to help you do that and to do the things that we just talked about in these 10, list, these 10 lessons, to be able to do the right thing, to be able to do the work that's needed, look at your family's picture every day, probably one that you go by every day and you see it and you become blind to it. But look at your family's picture every day and remind yourself why you wish to call yourself a warrior. And then you need to do something to actually earn that title. Now, the academy is really, it's the warrior life is, is meant to help you do just that, like live your life like a warrior. And so I take my own advice and right next to my computer, I always have a picture of Sergeant Brown with that steely-eyed look on his face of telling me, that's right, motherfucker, you're going to get wet. Suck it up and drive on. And with that, my fellow warrior, I wish you a happy Veterans Day. Until next week, live like a warrior. You've been listening to the Warrior Life Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us spread the mission of self-reliance and self-protection when you rate us. And leave us a comment wherever you enjoy these podcasts. And don't forget to check out our posts and videos on our social media channels. You'll see a full directory when you visit our website at www.warriorlife.com. We'll see you next time. This has been the Warrior Life Podcast. Prepare. Train. Survive.